Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. This episode is produced in collaboration with Other News. It's an international service that provides reporting and analysis in English, Spanish, and Italian. Three presidents in one week, massive protests led by the youth. What's going on in Peru? Joining us now to make sense of this is Patricia Oliot. She's a senior lecturer in Latin American Studies and head of Spanish, Portuguese, and Latin American Studies at Newcastle University in the United Kingdom. Thanks for joining us, Patricia. Thanks you for having me. So it wasn't that many years ago that Peru had apparently supposedly done this big turnaround. It was going to be one of the great stars of Latin America economically. Democracy had returned. And now, you know, at least at the level of presidential politics, uh, it's kind of like a, at a, a basket case. Corruption is rampant. Presidents are falling left and right. So give us some of the historical context and then we'll get into what's happening now. Okay. Um, it depends on how back in history you want to go. Well, a lot, well, a lot of people, the last thing they kind of know is Fujimori. So Yes. Um, the, the problems um, for the situation now start um, a bit before that, um, in 1985. Um, there is uh, substantial research uh, showing that with the first government of Alan Garcia, there was a sort of um, a seize of the state by um, the mafias in Peru, particularly um uh, narcotrafico and uh, a lot of um, what we call the submerged economy. So illegal mining, um, illegal logging, um, uh, narcotrafico, cocaine production and uh, commercialization linked also to the collapse of the cartels in Colombia. And um, it's more or less the same people in charge of these submerged economies that with Alan Garcia have access to power. Together with um, uh, neoliberal reforms that also allow a lot of influence for um, the formal economy in the state. So by, by neoliberal reforms, you mean privatization? And the shrinking of the state, uh, flexibilization of a lot of uh, laws uh, for trade, etc. To what extent do the Americans have anything to do with all this? I think more or less at that moment, uh, we are beginning a different global world. And certainly the, the U.S. have an influence, but there are other interests um, uh, coming into the country and also a very strong interest in um, oil exploration and, and exploitation and also mining. And so at that moment in, in the late 80s and 90s, it's the world of the corporations more than specific countries. And you can see that um, happening in the, in the country. So Alan Garcia finished his regime uh, in 1990 and then started Fujimori. And these were 10 years of demolishing of the state from within. Um, and also by the growth of 
uh, all these um, submerged economies in the different regions uh, with certain groups um, gaining more influence in power. There is also a process of a capturing of the judiciary in the country. Um, so the laws don't, <laughs> don't really work. Captured by who? The, the narcos or the corporates or both? Or both? Uh, both. It's an alliance. It's a tacit alliance. So the, the formal sectors of the economy turning a blind, eye, a blind eye on the other side and the others just creeping into every single corner they could uh, control. Just one question about the, the narco gangs from Colombia. Um, are they? Is there like cocaine in Peru, or they're bringing their money from Colombia to establish themselves in Peru? Peru, I think, is among the three main producers of coca leaves in uh, in the region. So you, you find uh, coca plantations in Bolivia, Peru, and Colombia. These are the three countries where the coca plant grows. And uh, there has been a 400% growth in coca plantations in Peru in the past 30 years. Um, and there is, a, um, there is a new variety of the plant that can now grow in the lower areas in the Amazon that it was not uh, the case before. It used to grow mostly on uh, the east uh, slopes of the Andes um, facing the Amazon. So uh, mountain, uh, mountains and uh, heat and humidity. But now it is growing in lower areas and in the forest uh, as well, in the rainforest as well. So there has been an expansion of the areas for the uh, coca plantations. And um, a very rapid process of we could call it democratization in the production of cocaine. Um, it is not produced in labs anymore. Uh, the very growers of the plant can uh, produce the basic paste, or no, pasta basica, uh, prior to, to cocaine, and then process it very quickly into kilos. And so there is now a huge uh, network of um, mostly young people distributing. Um, these kilos of cocaine to uh, the places where the um, cocaine leaves the country from the coast in the Pacific or through Bolivia and Brazil um, to the Atlantic. And I assume a, large, a, lo a lot of it's going to the United States. Yes. The, um, the map... Uh, has changed a lot. In the 80s, most of the market was controlled by Colombians. So the drug produced in Peru would go to Colombia and from Colombia to the world. But with the war on drugs in Colombia, the um, narcotraficantes lose power in Colombia. Um, Mexico takes control, the cartels in Mexico take control of uh, the uh, distribution of cocaine from South America to the U.S. Um, and the production of cocaine um, is uh, widespread um, all over the region by small producers who are at the same time the people who in many cases uh, also grow the plant. So the, sta so the state that emerges in the late 90s is this sort of alliance, or I would guess even merging in many places, 
narco narco money and corporate money a lot to do with resource extraction money so it's it's either cocaine resource extraction or mining uh and they they're all together in building the state okay yes that's more or less the scenario <laughs> and uh, right in parallel with this um you you have basically the disappearance of the political system that existed before the 80s um, the electoral laws uh, facilitate access to power from all these little lords um, of the formal and informal economy in the country, becoming themselves candidates. And so um, we have at the moment, I think, 12 candidates for the presidency in the country. This is in the coming elections in April, right? Yes. Yeah. What is it like? Half of them are under indictment for corruption or, some, or one thing or the other. Exactly. Um, in Congress right now, 68 out of 130 are processed. Um, some of them even sentenced um, for... I mean, char- charged, charged. Charged, yes. So all, all, uh, all, of, uh, all of them um, in a wide range of uh, crimes, no? Well, I, well, I don't want to break your historical argument, uh, narrative, but get to the point... Uh, no rush, but how do you even get a judiciary a judiciary that's willing to charge these people? I mean, like it's like pra- almost the whole government is involved in the, in this kind of corruption. Exactly. Well, the the thing is that there there is a very healthy core of uh, civil servants in the country, in spite of all of these. No, um, so uh, there there are prosecutors who are trying really hard and uh, it is it is very volatile it all depends on the support they have from the president um the alliances they form among themselves to build the cases and push them further it's a struggle within the state that that is quite dramatic so the moment we are in is uh, in a way the result of this uh, healthy core of civil servants uh independent journalism and young people Okay, we'll, we'll we'll get we'll get back to the present. So, pick up the narrative. We, so we enter the uh, 2000, 2000s with a corporate narco state. Exactly. It is. Uh, we don't dare yet to call it like that, but more and more people are showing evidence of of this. No, um, and um, so we have the end of Fujimori. Well, t- well, talk about fu- talk about Fujimori for a bit here, because that's that's the point that some a lot of people know about. Fujimori was in power from 1990 to uh, 2000. But but this nar- no, corporate narco state evolves under Fujimori. Absolutely. Um, his advisor, his main advisor, uh, Vladimiro Montesinos, now in jail, um, was kind of the organizer of this um, corrupt uh, state. Um, there is a famous uh, interview with President, um, one of the president, latest presidents in Colombia, um, mentioning how they discovered that Vladimiro Montesinos, this close advisor of Fujimori, uh, was dealing with arms, uh, delivering arms to the FARC in Colombia because he uh, didn't stop uh, short of getting involved in anything that was profitable. So, uh, 
uh, at one point during the Fujimori regime, Lima was the place where people from Al Qaeda would come to get sets of passports from for all over for the world. You know? so falsification of documents and narcotrafico, arms dealings, you name it. I mean, that's uh, my my memory of Fujimori. The way the West was portraying him. His, he was this economic reformer. He was going to create the, make the economy efficient. I mean, I don't remember much of this being talked about at all. No, um, the, the narrative uh, was um, that his regime brought Peru to the um, global financial system. At that moment, uh, we had missions uh, from uh, the Inter-American Development Bank, the World Bank, implementing the reform of the state. And he went along with this very happily. And uh, it was incredible because he used the money coming for for the transformation of the state to gain popularity. So it was money coming from abroad to push for the transformation of the Peruvian state, but he he used this money for partisan purposes. And so he became very popular. Um, The state finally, because of these reforms, appeared in many places in the shape of schools, um, medical attention, um, a, a very interesting reform in the judiciary as well that decentralized the implementation of justice. So for a lot of people, the Fujimori regime is the moment when the state finally reaches the most remote corners of the country. And at the same time, um, due to the liberalization of the economy, we get a lot of foreign investment because he relaxed a lot um, the um, laws for um, uh, giving concessions for exploration and exploitation of uh, fossil fuel fuels and also for mining. So we, it is a moment where there is a lot of investment in the country and a very clear turn to um, being a country that exports uh, primary resources. But under this veneer is rampant corruption. Exactly. From 2000, from the year 2000, because of a constitution that was uh, signed during the Fujimori regime in 1993, um, the political system was uh, very severely affected because all the big political parties disappeared. Um, due to the lack of political freedom that there were in those years, uh, it, some people call these years the, the era of anti-politics in, in the country because they were not relevant at all because we lived within a regime that was almost a dictatorship. So there was n- not really a space for any kind of political negotiation. Um, There was uh, a very silent um, dismantling of uh, all the unions, for example, along with the internal conflict with the Shining Path. So it was on one hand state repression and on the other, the guerrilla attack on the very thick network of social grassroots organizations that we had before the 1990s. So it was a a moment of disarticulation of of the country, the the social fabric of the country. So talk a little bit what Shining Path was, because I I know most people, including myself, have the vaguest notion of it being described as this terrorist group and all of that. 
Yes, they were very sim- They were Maoist, very similar to the Khmer Rouge in in Cambodia, in in their ideas. Oh, really? The Khmer Rouge, really? They were rather fanatical. Is 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 very similar. Is very similar in in their um, ideas, in their demeanor as as well, and in the way in which they treated the communities that they managed to to capture. Um, so um, they came from the 1965 uh, Sino-Soviet split. Uh, they were a small fraction uh, of this uh, communist um, um, fraction in that happened in those years. Um, and they had a leader that was a provincial intellectual that um, nurtured uh, the rage that people with frustrated expectations uh, had in the country. Peru went through a process of rapid social mobility for disenfranchised groups in the 1960s and 70s. But Peru is also a very racist country with no opportunities for social mobility if you are of indigenous origin. So the Shining Path uh, um, really fed into into this frustration. Uh, It grew rapidly in teaching schools, for example, and teacher training schools, a typical sector coming from um, peasants, um, working classes that have access to higher education and then are doomed to have these low-paid jobs that in Peru uh, a teacher earns uh, very little money is the worst paid um, sector in Latin America. If you compare school teachers all over the region, uh, Peru's teach, Peruvian teachers are very are, are at the bottom. So uh, that's where he grew. Um, he had a very loyal um, and firm um, um, militancy. Um, and they decided that it was a moment to engage in um, a war, in a popular war. And they declared the war to the state in 1979 and started attacking the state from its weakest point. So the school teacher could be the enemy and they would kill the teacher, um, mayors, um, uh, union leaders, uh, grassroots leaders who were not with them. So their idea was um, with us or against us. And let me ask a question. Was Shining Path uh, manipulated at all by the... I know, I just remember Fujimori used Shining Path as the rationale for what amounted to dictatorship. If he hadn't had Shining Path, I don't know how he would have exercised such power. The, the Shining Path, was it really its own thing or did the state actually in any way help create the thing? What they did was to delay their defeat. They were smaller than the government portrayed them, but um, they. Uh, this is a, a narrative that comes from the secret police trying to um, finish the Shining Path. And they, there, there are books and testimonies of how there were opportunities where they could have um, finished with the organization. And it was Fujimori who delayed his capture. So much so that they took advantage of a moment when Fujimori was on vacation fishing to actually capture the leader of the Shining Path. 
and presented uh, the fait accompli to, to him and he had to acknowledge and sit on top of it as his own victory. But they had to capture um, Abimael Guzman uh, without Fujimori knowing. And it was a very small group in the police who performed this uh, achievement <laughs> for the country. Yeah. So how does Fujimori come to an end? Um, because of his corruption. There, there was a lot of protests uh, from 1997. Um, he won the elections in 2000, but it was clearly rigged. There were lots of evidences of, of this, but still he, uh, to, he was the president when, when he left the country uh, in November um, in, in 2000. And um, he left because someone leaked uh, videos that his advisor had been accumulating uh, in a very incredibly well-staged um, scenario where he had a camera filming everybody who had some power in society and him um, taking loads of money, actual cash, <laughs> and, and negotiating with him. Okay, 10,000 is okay. Okay, here you go. No, um, And you had their uh, newspaper owners, um, media um, officials, authorities, congressmen, people from other political parties, military men, etc. He even filmed a ceremony where he had several officers in the military and the police signing allegiance to the regime. And he filmed it. <laughs> now, the Americans liked Fujimori, right? The American state. Um, and, they knew, and, and they must have known how corrupt he was. I'm not sure. I think there were mixed um, reports uh, from the U.S. Embassy to, to the U.S., um, because it was clear that he wasn't democratic. Um, and so I, I think it depended on, on who was reporting what, <laughs> uh, because uh, there, there were uh, clear human rights abuses, for example, and there were people from Washington coming to assess uh, those situations because it acted as an occupation army in, in the highlands and there were um, several um, war crimes really against peasant communities. So it, it depends on who in the US, no? But it was uh, certainly probably economically interesting because the investments were high and it was really easy to get a hold of um, territories with rich resources in, in mining and oil. But also, also Fujimori was seen as a figure who was very much against the left, against socialism. In fact, they even tried to equate Shining Path with some of the kind of socialist movements in other parts of Latin America. And I think the, Amer the Americans liked him for that. Yes, um, he, he did that indeed. And he was very successful in inserting in people a deep distrust from anything progressive. So for a few years, uh, it was very difficult from anyone with progressive ideas to further uh, their ideas or, or advance uh, politically until the last uh, past decade, probably. It, it is uh, something that in these days, it's really nice to observe the um, struggle to reinstate the validity of some progressive ideas in this context. Okay, so, so Fujimori goes down, the corruption... His corruption becomes clear. 
So, and what comes next? So, um, when these videos are leaked and everybody can see on television what happened, um, he escapes to Japan and resigns with a fax, <laughs> saying that he's no longer the, the president. And after his resignation, um, he um, uh, th there were ele elections in, in Peru. And then we have a series of presidents that kept more or less the same economic model, kept uh, economic growth, um, and the same constitution that favors um, foreign investors uh, and uh, lowers um, environmental standards and uh, also doesn't uh, allow for the creation of unions and um, uh, there is a progressive uh, loss of uh, workers' rights. No, so the the package, <laughs> the whole package con continued um, throughout the the years. Uh, it's so interesting because every election um, that we had since two thousand um, in two thousand and six, two thousand eleven, two thousand sixteen, uh, the candidate winning the election was the candidate opposite to the Fujimori party. No. Um, but in the end, the economic program uh, was uh, the same. Even in 2011, we had a, an openly left-wing candidate uh, who promised the great transformation and had a very anti-neoliberal electoral platform. But once he was in power, in power, he dropped everything and said that he wasn't going to conduct the transformation. But... Um, a, a map that he was going to follow a map to take us to a better place <laughs> but he increased the repression and uh, also concessions to mining companies etc so it was more more of the same and and the, and the, the narco gangs still have the same kind of power yes um with uh, the fragmentation of the political system, what you have now, similar to what happens in, in Mexico, is that if before the narcotraficantes or the submerged economy, because it's very complex, it's not just cocaine, it's, it's illegal mining, mo mostly for gold, um, and also um, other, other minerals that are uh, extracted under terrible conditions all over the country and illegal timber as well. Um, in the different regions, instead of them paying political parties to pass laws that favored them, what happened is that they themselves became candidates. Um, in the regions, these people have a lot of power. They build um, sports stadiums, um, they give money for schools, they develop um, cheap um, uh, housing. Um, so they, they throw their money out to, to their regions. And then um, they have started capturing Congress to pass laws uh, that favor them in very specific uh, aspects of the, the, the running of the regions where, where they are to favor their economic activities. So the um, Congress is like a market of very small interests where um, congressmen and women negotiate uh, their interests to have the right um, uh, correlation of voting for whatever law they want to pass. So it is a total mess.
I, I don't think that's so different than what goes on in Washington, but go on. In 2016, we had a um, candidate who is uh, right-wing, uh, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski. Um, he's worked in the in the U.S. He's been in he's been an executive or in sitting in the directories of all companies, etc. So he was a quite. Uh, um, clearly pro-neoliberal president, but um, he faced uh, Fujimori's daughter in those elections. And uh, they uh, were in the final run for the elections, just uh, Keiko Fujimori and uh, Kuczynski. And he got the support of the majority of the population because people were saying Fujimori never again. So um, Kuczynski got to the government and there were um, at the moment, um, do you know of the Odebrecht scandal from Brazil? What year are we in? We are in 2016 now. Okay. So uh, 2018. So I think Kuczynski was two years in, in power and then came the, the president who was um, uh, vacated, as we say, uh, uh, 10 days ago. So what happened was that Kuczynski won and in the when he was president, something very interesting happened in the judiciary, and is that an independent group of prosecutors uh, started better than in any other country in Latin America, having a lot of success following the implications of the of the Odebrecht scandal in Peru. Odebrecht is a company in Brazil who had been. Um, achieving concessions to carry out public uh, works um, in construction, in roads and dams and all these big in infrastructure uh, projects um, all over Latin America with a scheme, uh, with a very perverse mechanism. They, they had um, a, a double accountancy um, one for the projects they won, and the other one uh, that that um, was there to uh, bribe governments to accept um, their projects when they came on. How do you call this when several candidates present a project and the government has to choose for the provider? There is well, concessiones, way we call it when. So so they had a system by which they would pay. Uh, lawyers, um, officers uh, to gain um, the concessions to their projects, um, sometimes pricing them at a very, with very low budgets and high uh, technological standards, so that once they got the contract for the project, they would um, insert addendums to the, to the project to get more money. And in exchange, they would give expensive presents to the officials involved, etc. So everybody was smeared with this scheme all over Latin America. In Colombia, people trying to do research on these issues have been killed. In other countries, the whole investigation has been muffled, but not in Peru. And in Peru, the president, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, was linked to these schemes, and he resigned. And this is 10 days ago? Uh, no, this was uh, 2018, right? So he resigned, and then uh, the Peruvian ambassador in Canada, Martin Vizcarra, 
became president because he was the, the vice president in uh, Kuczynski's list. So Biscarra is an engineer uh, from south of Peru, from Moquegua, um, a good guy, <laughs> and an engineer wanting to serve the country. And so he he came to Peru, became president, but he was completely alone. And um, he was not linked to any um, group in power, uh, not in the formal economy or the informal economy. And he had uh, not even a progressive um, discourse, but a very decent one. <laughs> so he wanted to fight corruption. Um, he wanted uh, to um, expand state services. Uh, he wanted to broaden the um, uh, fiscal program, you know, reasonable things. He was immediately uh, seen by the most conservative sectors in society as an enemy, as well as from all of the uh, corruption groups. And the opposition to him in Congress um, and in the media, the official media, was relentless. Very, very heavy. And so uh, 10 days ago, what happened was that Congress uh, voted to um discard him as, as president because five people emerged um, to testify that he had also been corrupted by Odebrecht from Brazil when he was governor south of Peru in Moquegua because he had accepted um, the equivalent probably of uh, $600,000 more or less on bribes to conduct projects. He has denied everything. He has uh, surrendered his accounts, his passport, everything to be investigated. Um, and uh, that's when Congress said that he was not, he couldn't be the president with these allegations. He's not even been charged. Um, there, there is not even a complete case against him. It's an investigation, an ongoing investigation. And so they did this to him twice. So the first time uh, he went with, with his lawyer to Congress to defend himself and, uh, and he stayed, he remained. But two months after, when these five people emerge and start giving the similar testimony about him being corrupt as well, um, they decided to um, get him out, out of power and he didn't do anything. He, he said he was tired. And he said, the investigation is, is going and, and I'm not doing anything. So he didn't contest the, the second attempt. And that's where we didn't have a president. And then the co Congress elected a guy who has very good relationships with all the little corrupt organizations currently in Congress. No? And he negotiated with each of them interests uh, for passing laws that the executive had been rejecting because they were not um, viable, because they were damaging for the state. Um, so um, if, can I tell you <laughs> what the kind of businesses are? <laughs> um, with um, one of the ministers of uh, education is currently the head of the World Bank Division on Education, Jaime Saavedra. So he's a World Bank specialist in education. And we had him as Minister of Education in Peru. 
for the past uh, two regimes. He was uh, Minister of Education with Umala, the left-wing guy who turned out <laughs> neoliberal, and with Kuczynski. And from the Ministry of Education, he wanted to formalize education and clean the education market from corruption. Um, because there are fake universities in Peru. Uh, there are uh, fake private schools in Peru that provide really poor services. And there was no system of accreditation. So these uh, two consecutive regimes tried to create a system of accreditation to uh, preserve the right to a proper education to the students attending these places. So they created a commission to um, uh, initiate processes of accreditation for education institutions. And this affected the mafias controlling these really poor education um, uh, businesses, no? uh, universities for profit with no really credentials at all. So some of them were closed. And some of the members of uh, Congress um, that voted to get rid of Biscarra are owners of these universities, for example. There you have one. Then, um, because of the Odebrecht um, investigations, there are many business people who have also been linked to contracting services with this company and also for passing bribes to regional, local municipalities, etc., to gain access to these infrastructure project, uh, projects. So um, they are trying to stop the investigations for these allegations and in some cases, very well-formed cases. So, so, so 10 days ago, the president resigns, the Congress elects a new one. What happens to him? Uh, what happened was that as soon as he was elected, people went out to the streets because the rage that there is in the country of having these mafias in power is enormous. This is why they have been, we have been <laughs> voting every time for whoever we saw as non-representing the mafias. So whoever had an agenda of fighting corruption, we voted for no, regardless even of of the program they presented, it it you know wh whoever said stop corruption, this is it, and I am going after this and that, then we voted for for this person because the the rest is quite poor and empty, and you can see the the little corrupted people um, um, participating in in the elections with sometimes plagiarized. Um, government programs. You know? So it's, it's really miserable. So when these people won and, and, and um, got rid of the president, people went to the streets. And in the protests, um, two young men died, um, also because the police were in the streets to kill. There are videos of policemen saying, kill him, kill him, you know, that, that kind of thing, and shooting to the body. No? So it was not just uh, tear gas, but there were also um, pellets. Um, of, um, rubber, rubber bullets. Rubber bullets, but are, they are 80% lead. Well, that, ain't, that ain't rubber. <laughs> right? The coating is rubber, but 80% of the pellet is, is lead. And two students were killed. Yes. Once they die, uh, people are in the streets in the largest ever seen 
um, protest movement in the country. No? Uh, in Lima, uh, for example, you would see uh, 50,000 people in one plaza and some other people marching in the streets in previous years. This time, last Sunday, you had similar uh, amounts of people in different districts in Lima, in the smallest towns in Peru, the whole country was out. Well, there was a survey that says that 13% of the population was in the streets, no? not counting people banging pots from their houses because of the pandemic um, or hanging banners in their houses or people under 18 who were a large proportion of the people attending these marches because uh, of the situation of precarization that um, corruption has contributed to in the country together with neoliberalism. So if, if, you, if you want in Peru, the struggle against neoliberalism is linked to the fight against corruption. And most of the people in the streets were young, is that right? They were very salient. And what I think um, makes them visible is that because of the protest culture that has developed globally, they took control of the shape of the manifestation and its endurance. They, they gave it stamina and a lot of energy. But you had people in wheelchairs in the, in the streets. You had... It was a massive multi-generational manifestation of discontent. And social media played a big role. It, social media played a crucial role because we don't have political parties. We don't have unions. So the, the communities, gamers, skaters, TikTokers, K-popers, <laughs> no, were articulating the protest, giving people uh, ideas of where to gather, giving um, geo-referenced locations of where the police were, uh, organizing brigades to advance in the streets with, um, you know, with the Hong Kong techniques of using shields and uh, laser beams to confuse the police. Everything you can imagine learned from the Chilean uh, upheaval from last year, from Hong Kong, um, you know, uh, making crash the media, hacking uh, web pages from Congress, for example. <laughs> the Congress page was hacked. So all this protest culture that is global um, was used massively in this protest and made it very, very effective. So the, the, then this next president has to resign under the pressure of these protests. Exactly. And, and, and so where are we now? Who's president and what's next here? Um, in Congress, when they decided to get rid of Vizcarra, the um, votes were 105 out of um, 130. 105 voted uh, for um, ousting um, Vizcarra and 19 voted for him to remain. No? And so it is a sort of... Um, tradition that if something like this happened, because it happened exactly 20 years ago, the president can't be from the, the, the president that had been um, rejected by the population. So none of the 105 could be the next president. So the next president needed to come from the 19 who voted against um, 
the elimination of Vizcarra. And so uh, that's how we have a, a very interesting group of people. We have Francisco Sagasti as our president now. Um, he is an engineer and philosopher, expert in scientific and technological development. He served in the World Bank in uh, um, different uh, um, branches of government in, in Peru, mostly linked to um, science and technology. And he is a very well-mannered man. Um, he knows how to establish dialogue. Um, and so he was accepted uh, and uh, by most uh, of the Congress for the governability of the country. So, go, so a governmentality of the country. So we have him in, in, um, in power now. The um, uh, president of Congress is a lawyer and an activist of um, peasants' rights um, confronting mining companies. She has won twice uh, Buenaventura Mining uh, Company um, uh, to defend uh, people who are resisting um, uh, selling their land to mining, big mining projects. And, and she's a human rights uh, activist, and so and from uh, the left. Uh, so she's the president of Congress now, and that's where we are. And that's <laughs> where the, we are. Yes. And um, are the are the are the youth and others people still in the streets, or people are not? Pro protests continue. Yes, protests continue for two reasons. One is that. Um, people want a clear investigation about the, the particularities of the presence of the police during these uh, last 10 days, because we have never seen anything that violent. Um, for a few days, uh, there were around 50 people disappeared. They were kidnapped by the police, uh, imprisoned with no um, um, formal charging with uh, no prosecutor present and tortured as well no and and so for uh, had it not been for human rights organizations that really canvassed the whole city looking for them they would probably be dead now or still disappeared there are no disappeared at the moment but um and and it is due to the um, pressure from civil society and human rights organizations, but there is no clear uh, decision yet from the new government about how to deal with this no? the, and how to establish uh, criminal responsibilities for people who acted in this way. And at the moment, they are all avoiding responsibilities. Um, um, and so people are in the streets because they want uh, clarity um, people held responsible and also uh, compensation for the families of not just the two kids who were killed, but also of um, 102 severely wounded people with um, bullets in, in, the, in the head, uh, paralyzed with bullets in, in the back. Uh, it's, it's terrible. So the the damage has been terrible. The new president has visited some of these uh, wounded people in hospitals, but there's still nothing clear about who is going to take responsibility of this. And this is all happening 
during the COVID pandemic. And if I understand correctly, Peru has maybe the second highest per capita mortality rate in the world. Because I guess in the midst of all this chaos, how can there be any real control over the uh, pandemic? Exactly. Well, one of the terrible things that, that happened from the start, and that is also linked to corruption, was that we didn't really have a proper health system. Formally, um, we have universal coverage. But if you are ill and go to a public hospital, you need to take a relative to take care of you because there are no nurses, your own um, bedding, uh, and buy medicines wherever you can because hospitals are really poor. So, so we have the system, we have the doctors, but nothing else. I saw the same thing in Afghanistan in 2002. If you, we, we found a kid whose head had been split open and he needed stitches, but we had to run down the street to buy sutures to do the stitching because they didn't have anything to stitch with. Exactly. So, so um, Biscarra, the former president, a president 10 days ago, knew this, and this is why Peru had one of the quickest reactions to the pandemic. And with very hard measures of confinement, etc., because the system was not going to be able to respond. No? And yet... Uh, in that circumstance, we still saw corruption within the state. A person working in a public hospital who had just received medicines to treat uh, COVID stole the medicines to take them to her own pharmacy. No, so that kind of thing. Or a relative of the governor in Iquitos who had received from the airport um, oxygen to treat patients uh, kidnapped <laughs> these uh, um, uh, oxygen uh, tanks in order to sell them privately. No, so corruption is absolutely generalized. And this has also hindered the intentions of the government to respond to it. So out of this protest movement, is there a, a progressive political formation that could emerge as an alternative? Well, what is interesting is I, I told you about the first uh, reason why people are in the streets. And the second reason why people are in the streets now is because it is growing the understanding that at the root of all the um, evil things happening to Peruvians is the constitution of Fujimori of 1993. Because this constitution creates a, a political party system that allows for this fragmentation um, and the election of corrupt um, people because of the, the system, the voting system, that basically you vote for individuals and not for political parties when you vote for Congress. And then the other um, uh, thing is the, the little power the state uh, has at the moment due to this constitution to stop uh, monopolies or, you know, one enterprise uh, grabbing. For, for example, there is one company that owns 80% of pharmacies in the country. And the government can't do anything about that because of the constitution. No, So at the root of um, several of our evils, people see the need for changing constitution. And we just have what happened in Chile 
where this change of constitution was at the root of the of the movement, no, of the up, upheaval. And so this idea is growing. Uh, and the other thing that is happening is that uh, people are starting to understand that being left wing or progressive doesn't make you a terrorist which is the idea that Fujimori instilled very deep in people's fears, no? because the, the, the experience of the armed conflict was traumatic for many people. And everybody saw these as linked to um, socialist ideas, etc. So something that is interesting in these days is that these, um, we could say, anti-progressive ideas are losing prestige no? at the moment, and people don't believe this anymore. Um, people are being more critical these days of fake news and all these right-wing, very conservative um, ideas that uh, uh, demonize anyone who talks of progressive changes, etc. So something nice may happen out of this. We have elections in, in April next year. Some people are saying that that could be the moment to work towards a change in the constitution. But we still have people in the streets um, because of the human rights issue and also because there is a growing demand uh, for changing the 1993 constitution. So we don't know what is going to happen and it is not clear yet how the president is going to tackle the opposition or or the voice from the streets. No, he started his um, first addressing to the nation, acknowledging the importance of the political participation of people in the streets. Uh, he acknowledged um, the the death. Um, kids. Uh, he apologized uh, from the state to the nation for these um, events, uh, but it is not clear yet what he, he is going to do about that. Either the constitution, he has uh, not said a word about it. Uh, what he's saying is that his main commitment is in the five or eight in the months that he has um, towards uh, April, um, he wants to have clear, transparent elections and he wants to fight COVID. So those two are his priorities. That's what he wants to do. And it's very interesting because he had uh, called for a cabinet, a really interesting range of uh, people with trajectory in the state as uh, several of them either have been ha have served as ministers in, in previous regimes or have been uh, vice ministers. And, and so it's, it's a very competent uh, team seen by the right wing as left wing, socialist, communist, um, chavistas, whatever. But they are all really um, interesting professionals and many of them with no qualms about neoliberal economic <laughs> economic plans or whatever, but um, what but do you mean by no qualms? You mean no qualms about being neoliberal or being anti-neoliberal? Uh, being neoliberal. So it's a very centrist, very centrist group. Exactly, it's, it's a center cabinet. Cent cent but I yeah. suppose if they, if they're not rapidly corrupt, that's that's some move in the right direction. <laughs> I think I think that's the major gain of this whole thing. Well, I saw that Peru's gross GDP has gone down by 14% since the pandemic quit. So high mortality rate, high unemployment, and the economy, the way that this is going is going to get worse. Listen, we'll come back to you, Patricia. 
Uh, we'll, we'll, in a few weeks, we come back and we'll talk again and uh, catch up where things are. Okay. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for doing this. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Please don't forget, uh, we've got this fundraising campaign going on. We have a, a $10,000 matching grant. If you give a buck, we'll get it matched a buck. If you donate monthly, that will get matched. And thanks for joining us on the analysis.news.